This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. After a little bit of a break from skills episodes, here we are again. Today, we are going to be talking about how to break those rules and get creative with ERP. Now, just a disclaimer, when we say get creative, we still mean stay evidence-based. Yes, we do. So you are going to hear us talk about how to design exposure tasks with your clients when you're embarking on ERP, and you're going to hear us talk about the importance of collaboration, creativity, and courage. And that is not just for clients, but for all us clinicians too. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our next skills episode. Oh, my God, we haven't done one of these in so long. I know. It's really good to be recording one of these again. Yes, it is. Tori and I got really excited last year and recorded a whole bunch of interviews, which you've (laughs) hopefully been enjoying because we get released every fortnight. We had this massive backlog and it's now a new year, 2023, and we're only just doing another skills episode. But it's really good to be doing this again. And we thought we'd um, link back to our last skills episode, which listeners might remember was what is ERP, sort of the foundations of exposure response prevention, how to do it, what it looks like, how to structure a session. So we thought we'd um, extend from there and talk about how to create ERP tasks. Because don't you reckon, Celine, this is one of the questions that we often get from other practitioners. And I often find parents who are wanting to support their kids at home about how to design creative exposure tasks. Because I think that there are a lot of obsessions and compulsions that people feel really stuck with. You know, how do, how do I expose myself to this? How do we get creative about this? And I think this is actually where we can get really creative and have a bit of fun. Would you agree? Yes, especially when clients are like, how do I do an exposure without actually committing a crime? (laughs) (laughs) We don't want that happening. (laughs) No. The biggest one is, oh, my God, my search history browser is going to not be (laughs) morally acceptable. And I was like, have you seen mine? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) In terms of all the things we have to look up for ERP tasks. Yeah. All right, let's do it. We've chosen a common one just as a easy to start with to kind of get your head around how to apply the formula, I guess. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Yeah, like a nice nice and easy one to start with. It's fairly tangible and concrete. And then we've chosen two that I think are probably the most common questions we get asked about because they can be a little bit more nuanced. And our hope is that as we work through these examples that it will become clear in terms of The protocol doesn't change so much as the content will change, but how you do it doesn't change. Yeah, that's a really good way to summarize it, I think. All right. So let's jump in. Our first topic or subtype, I guess, is going with good old-fashioned contamination. So how would we structure exposure tasks? Well, first and foremost, you need to establish what those triggers actually are and then 
once we know what those triggers are, it's really up to you as to whether you work methodically through the least anxiety provoking to the most anxiety provoking triggers. And you do it collaboratively with your clients. Like I'm a really big fan of rather than kind of in my own time, writing down a whole bunch of ERP tasks client can do. While I do think of that, I often offer that to my clients and say, okay, these are some ideas. What ideas have you got? What have you been avoiding? You want to make it as realistic as possible. So A, your client's more motivated to do it and feels ownership over it because it feels relatable to them and it's actually something they're dealing with. And the other thing that's important is it's going to feel more realistic. And so they're likely going to actually feel discomfort while doing it as opposed to doing it because we've asked them to do it. Yeah, agreed. Any kind of exposure exercise that isn't done collaboratively, if it's imposed on someone, you, I think we inevitably get a lot of resistance. There's reduced willingness. And I don't think it really taps into their own intrinsic motivation or their self-belief, their belief that they can actually tolerate this discomfort, that they can urge surf. I think it's got to come from um, a collaborative discussion. For sure. So once you've done that with your client and you've had that discussion and you know what that list of triggers is going to look like, you like I said before, you can either work through it methodically from least anxiety provoking to most anxiety provoking or you can do a bit of a menu approach and be like, okay, which one are we up for today? And go with that. So once you've established what you're actually going to work on, there are so many ways you can actually tackle the task. So let's say, for example, a client chooses that they want to touch the lift buttons want to touch the lift buttons. I don't know that client would ever say that they want to. I know. I don't think it's like, I want to touch lift buttons. (laughs) They might say, I need to be able to touch lift buttons again. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Or I am willing to give this a go. I don't really want to. I want to, but I need to. But I need to to because I need to get to work or I need to be able to get out of my apartment building or. (laughs) That's right. Whatever else it is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but you're right. Let's say a client wants to go down that pathway, is willing to go down that pathway. Yep, willing. (laughs) So let's just say a client has willingly said, let's give this a go. Let's give lift buttons a go. What we would do in that instance is just kind of gauge how uncomfortable they would feel straight out going and touching a lift button without washing their hands or sanitizing or wiping their hands on their clothes or whatever else it is that they might be doing as a compulsion to neutralize that sensation of feeling disgusted or icky or gross or contaminated or feeling like something bad's going to happen or whatever the consequence is or whatever the sensation is and the feeling is. So they might say, you know what, that's going to make me feel eight out of 10, 10 being like full-blown panic stations, discomfort. And we're like, okay, how willing would you be to sit with an eight out of 10? And not many people are going to be very willing to sit with an eight out of 10. I reckon six to seven is the sort of money zone. That absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So in that situation, if a client says, I'm probably going to be an eight out of 10, then we can break that task down in so many different ways without actually touching the lift button, but we're preparing our client to touch the lift button. And so ways that we might do that is through using, we might do imaginal exposure. You and the client might come up with a common scenario that they, where they would need to use a lift button. 
and you would encourage your client to sit through an imaginal exposure task of touching the lift button in that situation. You might write a script together. Jonathan Grayson's book has got a really great examples of scripts and how you can structure them if you need any examples in terms of what a scenario would look like. And they might read over that a few times. If you have access to a lift, we do, which is lucky in our office. You might actually go out and have a look at it. You might just be like, imagine what it's like touching it. So you kind of talk it up a little bit. Any other ideas, Tori? Well, you could also do things like watch, get someone to record a video of them touching the button and, you know, you could watch that and imagine that that's your hand. You can use virtual reality tools of getting in a lift and touching the buttons and things like that. And I think once you've kind of gone through those steps, the next step would be touching the buttons and then designing plans around whether maybe you start by just tapping it with your pinky and then touching it and sort of lingering with your finger on the button and then maybe going inside the lift and touching a couple of different floors, you know, so touching a couple of different buttons, using your whole hand, smearing your hand all over all the buttons, both hands, and then taking that dirty finger and touching your face eating some food afterwards or touching your handbag or your phone or something that you don't want contaminated. So what we call spreading the love, you know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So all the time. And then it depends on accessibility, but you could also think about public versus private lifts and, and sort of grading different lifts in different places and what might be the most triggering lift and what might be a less triggering lift and start with a less triggering lift going right up to what someone might consider like a really contaminated lift that they really don't want to be in sort of and then applying all of those same strategies but for increasingly difficult environments. A hundred percent yeah like the lift in your apartment building versus the lift in a train station but equally so someone might rank their apartment building fairly anxiety provoking because there might be a neighbor that's deemed particularly triggering and knowing yeah. that they're touching the lift button. So it's, it can get quite nuanced. So it's really important to be collaborative. Yeah, that's right. And to ask lots of questions, be really curious. I suppose the one thing we've talked about this before, I think it was in our interview with Claire Lawson, who is the clinical practitioner in uh, Perth, talking about trying to not spend too long in the design phase as well because the design phase while being very important is also a great way to avoid actually doing exposure you can spend a lot of time designing strategies and never actually get to the doing and so if we think about I tend to approach it which I suspect is very similar to you Celine is that I'll do a, a lot of designing but then when it comes time to actually activate a particular step that's when we'll get into a little bit more of the nuance about exactly how it's going to unfold. And we'll do a, a sort of an exercise think, talking about sort of what are we going to predict? What do you anticipate is going to happen? What thoughts and feelings are you predicting are going to occur? What do we have to make room for? What are the strategies you're going to use as you're resisting the urge to engage in your compulsion? What are you willing to tolerate today? And then go do. And so I'll sort of, you know, we sort of do the broad umbrella design and then get down into the nitty gritty at each step. Because otherwise I think you can just spend, you can spend weeks designing and never doing. You so can because it is so, it can get so nitty, like nuanced in terms of 
all the little fine details. But that step's really important. And that's something that a lot of our clinicians use in our clinic in terms of going through what are those hurdles going to be? What are you going to face? When you're attempting this trigger and this exposure task, what is OCD going to be telling you in that moment that's going to throw you off course? And all those wonderful questions you just posed is a really important step to prepare your client to be armed with the tools they need to be able to make room for that discomfort and to go in at a steady baseline rather than their anxiety creeping up so much that in that moment, rather than being responsive, they become reactive and then it can set them up for failure. Yeah, that's right. And then it feels too hard and I suck at this and I'm never going to get better and it just can become all too much. Yeah, I agree. I think the other thing that is really important to think about when designing ERP tasks is checking in with what capacity your client has to actually do these exposure tasks on their own at home or at work. Because I think you can spend some time designing and then send someone away with the home task and then discover that once they're home, they feel disconnected from their willingness, their courage, and they come back either having done one little task the night before their next appointment or as an alternative, they just don't get it done and you get stuck in this sort of design phase and then sending clients away and then never actually moving through to action. And I think um, when a client is stuck in that respect, I think start with exposures in the room and that's where the script writing, the imaginal work is really great because you can do that with your client and they can start to build some self-confidence, some self-belief with you before they go and embark on it at home. I've certainly been in that experience before where we've done all of this fantastic creative work and sent them off with this either too much to do. Yes. (laughs) You know, got over-enthusiastic. The plan was too much or I didn't properly understand that they weren't quite ready or able to do it on their own and we needed to be doing far more work in the room together before they tried to do it on their own. I think so. And when we're doing it in the room, it's also a really great way of continuing to teach all of those distress tolerance skills and the episodes with Mike Chuig, probably the ones you want to go back to if you haven't listened to them already because they come from an act-based perspective that are ERP-friendly in terms of how to apply those to keep teaching your client those strategies while you're working with the exposure tasks with them so that they can keep building confidence in using them as well so that they can then go home and really have that confidence to do it on their own because they've just been practicing as much as they can as well. Regardless of what the obsession is, whether it is about hand washing or bathing or dirt, germs, shoes, clothes, you know, it does not matter what food, it does not matter what it is. The content doesn't matter. The formula is the same. It's breaking it down to what the trigger is and and just working strategically through small steps. And using what the client avoids and doesn't do to inform what kind of tasks you're actually going to work on. That responsibility, I don't think, sits on our shoulders. And I think actually if we just leap over to sort of a more act-based approach rather than pure ERP, although we're not advocating for pure ERP because we integrate a lot of mindfulness and act-based distress tolerance skills, as you were just saying, but one of the approaches that I find particularly for people who are quite resistant of doing structured exposure tasks like this would be, as you're saying, if there's an activity that someone hasn't been doing that they've been avoiding, that they really want to 
bring back into their life, then the way that you would design the ERP task is actually say, well, you know, you've not been going to the movies for ages because the idea of the germs on the seat, but you miss it. You're missing out on hanging out with your mates. You know, you miss that cinema experience. You love to watch film. So what are you prepared to tolerate? So rather than going, how can we get you tolerating sitting on germy seats? It's like, well, this is something that you miss and you love. How can we get you back in the cinema? So you really want to spend time with friends. You really want that experience. You really want to re-engage with this special interest of yours. How do we get you back in the cinema? What are the steps to take to get you back in the cinema? So you're addressing a contamination obsession all the same, but you're working around the avoidance, but you're using their values as the guiding light, as opposed to how do we get you used to germs per se? So it's the same kind of conversation, but it's a slightly different angle, which really helps tap into really what a client feels is most important. Absolutely. And it's much more motivating for our clients and clients become way more willing to be able to get back in touch with their values and what they've been missing out on to help guide and keep that willingness going. All right. Should we do pure O? Yes, let's do pure O. Okay, so creating ERP tasks for pure O. I think that this is a really interesting OCD theme to explore because if we think back to our episode on pure O, there is the misconception that because the compulsions aren't visible, that they're not external, that there's nothing you can do. But actually the same formula applies to mental compulsions as physical external compulsions, doesn't it? Absolutely. Just because you're not physically touching a lift button or a door handle or resisting the urge to wash hands or using knives if knives are a trigger for you, just because that's you're not doing anything physical or tangible doesn't mean that you still can't do an exposure task. That's exactly right. So when it comes to pure O, we're talking about rituals that people do inside of their mind. So it might be counting, it might be remembering, it might be sort of going back over their steps that they took that day to track to see if they did anything. It might be imagining and bringing to mind symbols, letters, words, poems, phrases, colors, objects, you know, just anything that is done compulsively in the mind with the intent of either bringing a just right feeling or preventing harm from coming or keeping you safe in some way. These are what we're talking about when we're talking about pure O compulsions. And so ultimately what we want is we want people to be able to resist the urge to engage in these compulsions. Now it is tough because sometimes whether we like it or not, the mind starts to go down that path. And so it's so quick. It's so fast at doing it. And especially if you've been doing a long time and you're not, someone's not super aware that they're, they're starting to engage in those things. It can be a hard process to interrupt. And I think sometimes we talk about how, you know, going back to the lift example, you can kind of go, come on little hand and push that button, you know, (laughs) a little bit harder, you know, when you're working (laughs) internal experience, but it's the same process, which is writing down what all of the triggers are, what all of the compulsions are. And it can be that if there's something that someone is avoiding, so what they're doing is that they're doing these mental compulsions because they are trying to compensate or neutralize a negative thought that they had, or they're trying to do the mental compulsions to, you know, 
to compensate for something that they just heard, then what we're doing is we are exposing them to the things that they have been trying to avoid or neutralize or compensate for with their compulsions and then encourage them to resist the urge to engage in that compulsion. Mm -hmm. So it might be that if there's a particular word that someone doesn't want to hear and if they hear it or they think it, they have to engage in a compulsion, well, the exposure is to the word. And you would design the exposure by getting them to read the word write the word, hear the word, say the word, use the word in a sentence, and all the while resisting the urge to engage in their mental compulsion, whatever that happens to be. If there are particular themes or that they don't want to think about, then we're inviting them to engage in content about that topic. So it might be conjuring up specific images in their mind and allowing those images or thoughts to be in their mind and to sit with that discomfort and resist the urge to compensate with the mental ritual in in some way. Irrespective of what the content of that image is. Absolutely. Even if it feels really morally unacceptable, even to us <laughs> yeah. as people, yeah, as clinicians, right. even if it feels really uncomfortable for us sometimes, actually a lot of the time we have to sit with our own discomfort of thinking, shit, what am I asking this client to do? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, in terms right. of what the content might be, but at the same time, it's all internal and it's all content. It's not like we're asking clients to actually go out and engage in that stuff, in those scenarios, whatever that might be. Thanks for joining us for part one of our chat. Join us next episode as we conclude the conversation. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative, To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break break the the rules. rules.